Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Hi, everybody. I'm Dan Harding. Welcome back to the Power Motor Yacht Podcast. I have a real special episode for you guys today. Today, I'm going to be talking with New York Times bestselling author and host of the podcast Dedicated by Doug Brunt. Doug, he's written numerous novels, but it's his most recent book that we're going to be discussing today called The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel. The story should be familiar to a lot of our loyal readers as we ran an excerpt from that book in our February issue. The book is truly, it's a fascinating read. It was recommended to me by our digital director, John Turner, who listened to the whole thing basically straight while he was on a recent road trip. He came back, he insisted, Dan, you got to listen to this. And man, was he right. It was, this, uh, it, was, it was something you couldn't put down. So let's get started. Without further ado, welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you being here and, uh, and, and sharing the excerpt with us. It's, uh, the story is especially fascinating, I think, for our magazine, because uh, you know, the editor, I'm the editor of a magazine that has the words power and motor in the name. And I gotta say, I'm a little embarrassed. I've never heard of Rudolph Diesel before your book. And I find solace though in knowing I'm not alone. No, including me. I'm right there with you. I owned I owned two diesel engines before I knew there was a man named Rudolph Diesel who invented them. Amazing. It's so I'm gonna play dumb, dumb here for a little bit because I did read the book, but why is it? that Rudolph Diesel got lost to history. But that's really at the crux of the whole book, because mm-hmm. if you go back more than 100 years ago, he, he invented the engines in 1897. Mm-hmm. By the early 1900s, they had already established themselves as critical for submarine use. There was no way to operate a submarine in World War I or World War II without the diesel engine. The mm-hmm. kerosene and gasoline engines did not work for submarine use then. It was right. dominant for inland industrial use, uh, it took over the rails. I mean, really nothing moves without the diesel engine to this day. But when he disappeared in 1913, he was a celebrity. He was like the Elon Musk of his day, maybe not with quite that level of wealth. Right. But he was an international celebrity. So when he went when he disappeared in 1913, it was it was headlines in every country around the world. Mm-hmm. And the reason why his name has been scrubbed from history, really, it, it gives away quite a bit of the book, I think, to to get too far into that, that's really the crux of the mystery. But For what sure. you learn through the course of the book is that he was deliberately scrubbed from history. Hmm. That's well said. So let's let's uh, let's back up just a just a half step. I mean, it, is it true that the genesis of this book started with your own boating experience, and then that your boatyard actually suggested a repower, and that's forgive the pun, that's what got the gears spinning. That that's exactly right. I mean, I grew up kind of in the bays of New Jersey. And mostly what I rode around on were, you know, 18 foot whalers with 50 horsepower outboards, that kind of thing, you know, water, water skiing, stuff like that. And then uh, more recently, about eight years ago, uh, my wife and I decided to get a, you know, a larger boat, be fun for taking some longer trips and, you know, you know, entertaining on, I guess a little bit, but uh, so we bought this much larger boat, but it was older. It was a 96 hull, and uh, it 
it needed to be kind of fixed up and and the boatyard guy said you know probably repowered there's some older gasoline engines there so mm-hmm. i was talking to the guy about how to fix it up and he said the first thing you should do with a boat like this is repower it to diesels and i had not really even thought about that i mean again i was looking at you know johnson outboards and i hadn't really thought about diesel uh, as an engine much you see it at a fueling station i just thought it was really more a different fuel option or something like that and he, he gave me all the reasons about why you would use diesel particularly in a marine environment, 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines, none from diesel. The fuel efficiency is two to three times better. So in your fuel tank, you have two or three times the range. Right. The, the fumes are, are less, you know, and so all, all these reasons. So I did repower to diesel. Mm-hmm. And then, as you as you mentioned in your intro, I've, I've mainly written fiction in the past. And so I was in between novels and tinkering around online looking for ideas that might, you know, lead to something in a book. And I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea. And on the list was Rudolph Diesel, who had disappeared in the North Sea in in 1913 under very bizarre circumstances. And so I thought, well, wow, I wonder if that's had anything to do with these diesel engines that I just bought. And of course it did. And so I went into these, you know, just sort of like a a rabbit hole of archives around Europe and America, you know, fleshing out the story. Well, it's amazing. I mean, I can see why it would appeal to you, even even as a primarily a fiction writer, because this it's a story is stranger than fiction. It has all all the ingredients that that a great novel has. So it, it makes sense that someone with your background would latch onto that. Yeah, I mean, they're villains and they're heroes and they're you know huge, huge things at stake that are driving you know national decisions and wars and industry and you know it's it's yeah. uh, all set in this crazy turn of the century time. What I jokingly refer to as the sort of Downton Abbey, the early years, you know, prior that, that quarter century leading up to World War One, which is just a fascinating time. It was. And that's and that's kind of what I wanted to get into is that the, your book is such an interesting cross section of genres. I mean, really, it starts out. It, it's more of a traditional biography if you, as you take take us through Rudolph's life. And then it gets kind of in, it's this, a historical timepiece where you just really help explain the forces at work leading up to World War One and and then wrap wraps it up in this awesome, you know, murder mystery. And it's uh it, it has a little bit of everything. But to me, as as a writer, I keep coming back to the research that must have been done to pull this project off. I mean, can you tell can you tell me a little bit about that process? I mean, this is probably not something that could even be measured in months. It just seems like exhaustive is the word that comes to mind for this research. It, it was exhaustive. It was almost five years start to finish. And in fact, in the wow. beginning, I almost went down the path of writing it as historical fiction mm-hmm. because there's so little written about Rudolf Diesel, especially in the English language. And I thought, well, you know, I've got the, the scaffolding of a good story here and I'll just make up the dialogue and sort of fill it in and make it a novel. And then the more I got into it, I was able to find things. And I, I realized it hasn't been told and that it would be a disservice to do it yes. as as fiction. So I, I just felt it needed to be done in a non-fictional way. And, but in terms of the research, there, there are a couple things I would say about that. One is it's probably easier to have done it in these last 10 years than it was to do in you know 1920 or 1930, because right now I can kind of visit the whole globe from my desk chair with the amount of stuff that has been scanned into databases, you know, and more gets scanned every day. I can see what was in the newspapers in 1913 in Berlin, Munich, London, New York, Moscow, all in an hour wow. from my from my 
poem. Whereas, you know, in 1920, I've had to, I'd had to go to those cities and open filing cabinets and, you know, shake off the dust and look at the papers. So more gets scanned every day. You can, you can do some newspaper archival research, you know, from anywhere. But then I also had access and a, a lot of this research was done during COVID. So I, I made friendships remotely with people working in the archives around Germany and the UK and different places in the U.S., because the U.S. actually plays a big role. Adolphus Bush, as you know, having read the book, Adolphus Bush, the founder of Anheuser-Busch, was the diesel pioneer here in America, not only using the engine for his breweries, but also built submarine diesels for the U.S. Navy. But I, I made friends with place, uh, people in different archives. And, for example, in Germany, the this one museum had his diaries from his two trips to America, one in 1904 and one in 1912, and of course, they're written in Germany, in German. But I right. called up a buddy of mine at my old high school. And I was like, who's who's teaching German over there these days? And he said, oh, this guy's doing it. So he introduced me and I sent over reams of material. And uh, this guy was of German descent who became as obsessed with the diesel story as I was. Wow. And he translated hundreds and hundreds of pages of stuff for me. Wow. And then we'd have these like midnight phone calls where he's saying, I have this theory on the case. We go back and forth you know, talking about it. So everyone who touched the story along the way and helped me along with the research also became enamored, not only with Diesel as a man, because he was a really, uh, just an incredible individual, but the story is so compelling and that, you know, what Diesel meant, you know, still to this day, of course, but at that time in terms of what a game changer it was for naval warfare, uh, it's, it's just an incredible story. It must be so gratifying that you kind of built these partners in crimes as you're you're like a detective kind of peeling this back. It must it just must have been so nice that you could share it with somebody like that. Who who is the name of the person that uh helped you with the transcribing of the German? Oh, uh, it was um oh my gosh. I, hold on a second. I, I'll have to uh Ger, Gerhard Gerhard Reich. Gerhard Reich. Okay. In fact, we did a I I feel terrible for even pausing on his name because we did an event. But when the book came out, I went back to my old high school and he and I had a conversation. We sort of hosted a conversation together oh, talking wow. about the book for the for the school. Amazing. <laughs> and just to be clear, because I was so convinced by how you set the scene, especially, you know, Rudolph's life growing up. And had you have you been over to Germany as part of the research or it feels like you had to have been? I, I've been to parts of Germany. Um for part of the research and also to France. I went to Paris. And so, as you know, from the opening of the book, he's, he lived his first 12 years in Paris from 1858 to 1870. So I found his childhood home. And, you know, just down the road, there's a museum that he went to visit most days as a child where he looked at old steam, uh, uh, steam engines and things like that, and which actually holds an early diesel engine in that museum to this day. So I Got to visit his childhood home and his his favorite museum as a child. What was it like visiting his childhood home? Here's this guy that you were like so entrenched with. I mean, border, you know, borderline. You get this obsessive research you're doing. What was it like to be there? Well, the truth is, it was depressing, and oh, no. it's, cons it's consistent with a deficit of appreciation for the man to this day. Because you go to the childhood home, and all there is is this tiny little plaque on a wall. You know, this sort of like uh, vinyl plaque. And it, in French, it says, you know, childhood home of Rudolf Diesel, birth date, death date. And that's kind of it. And it's surrounded by graffiti and stickers. And like, I actually took a photo of it and 
Oh, uh, it's on my website. If you go to my website, there's a photo of me that my wife took right by the plaque on the wall. And it just, it's sort of a sad remembrance of this person who really should be mentioned in the same sentence with Edison, Tesla, Bell, Marconi, the Wright brothers, but he's not, you know, most people don't even know that he exists. And one of the points I make in the book is that diesel is often misspelled with a lowercase d, which does not happen for Ford or Chrysler. It's it's such a good point too. And uh, the person, the our digital director who turned turned me on to this book before I I had st even started reading it, he he'd be reading the magazine. He's like, "You're still lower casing diesel." And it's like, I, "I'll read the book and we'll reevaluate." <laughs> but you really you you're you're changing my mind, and it's uh yeah, it is a disservice to him. One thing I, one thing I think. I was probably personally most interested in, but I think a lot of our readers are too, is the diesel, when he invented the diesel engine, I mean, he didn't originally intend this to be the machine that moves the world. It wasn't supposed to be this big commercial engine, but then, so I was wondering if you could maybe touch on his original intent for the engine, but then also the fuel he intended for it to run off of. Yeah, he, so he was, they grew up very, sort of lower middle class. His father was an artisan in Paris. And then with the outbreak of the Franco-Prussian War in 1870, they had to flee Paris with basically the shirts on their back. And then they moved to London and they lived in the tenement housing and sort of had the worst underbelly experience of the Industrial Revolution in London, which was the sort of epicenter for it at that time. And so he saw kind of the horrors of the industrial age. And what his hope was, was to build a power source that could help decentralized economies and small artisans like his father. And so in the 1880s, when he was a bit older and he was studying in, in uh, Munich mm -hmm. to be an engineer, he, he made a list of potential uses for the engine he hoped to create, which was to help small artisans like his father, you know, even like dentistry or bookbinding or, mm -hmm. you know, small things for rural economies rather than the centralized, you know, urban industrial age. And of course, as you know, that that's not what happened. It, it, that small sort of power source was really uh, delivered by Tesla's electric motors. But the diesel engine, it was way more compact than, you know, the steam engines of that era, which were the size of a small house. You know, they had the boiler and the furnace and the chimney apparatus to you know, boil water and move gears of an engine. The diesel engine as internal combustion didn't require all the all the components of a, of a steam engine, but it could deliver that kind of torque and power. Right. Um, so in terms of fuels, he also was trying to deliver an engine that could be more flexible with regard to fuel. And so in the early days, he had experimented with ammonia and other gases like methane and benzene. But really what he settled on was a heavier, more stable fuel. So he could burn, his engine could burn coal tar, which is uh, derived from the coking process with coal. So if you go through the coking process, you get coke coal gas and coal tar, which is sort of like a black sludge, um, but it makes a good fuel for the diesel engine. Or it could be, uh, it could use vegetable or nut oil, which is what he primarily used. And in 1900, he won the Paris World's Fair with a diesel engine running peanut oil. So this, of course, became a threat to Rockefeller and Standard Oil and the big oil trusts, the petroleum trusts. Sure. Who were who were you know trying to get the combustion engine, which was really just emerging in the early 1900s. Um, they were trying to get combustion engines to run on gasoline, and so that's why you know the the, the mystery as we set it up. When diesel disappears, there are two suspects that might have murdered him because the, the circumstances of the disappearance are so bizarre 
Right. And the body wasn't found. Uh, you know, there, a body was, was uh, reported found days later, but newspaper headlines around the world suspected that he was murdered either by Rockefeller or agents of big oil mm-hmm. or by Kaiser Wilhelm II. And Rockefeller's reason for doing it, of course, was that the diesel engine was a threat to demand for gasoline and petroleum because diesel was saying he, even on his trip in america in 1912 was saying i can run your whole rail system i can run all your engines here in america on butter or you know basically saying you know vegetable oil right um, and we don't we can break up the american fuel monopoly and we don't need a law to do it we can do it on the power of this technology the diesel engine so he was actually sort of throwing down the gauntlet that i can i can break up standard oil uh, just with the power of the diesel technology. And and actually, to this day, you know, Willie Nelson was riding around on his tour bus like 15 years ago with a diesel engine running recycled kitchen grease. Right. So the diesel, to this day, diesel is very flexible with regard to fuels. Well, I guess, I guess my question is, so I know why it took off, you know, with the petro diesel, you know, it was the, it was fueling the war machines of the time. And, and I see... I see why the bigger demand was there, but it's kind of interesting that nobody else kind of picked up the the biofuel diesel. Why do you why do you suspect that is? Because it was well, out there. I, yeah. I, so so of course you know a lot of people say, hey, you're saying it runs on you know vegetable oil, but that's not true. It runs on on petroleum, which is which it does. I mean, it, most diesel engines today burn petrol diesel, but you know that's not what Rudolph advocated. Uh, and it didn't have to be the case. And the reason why Rockefeller's sort of petroleum really won out in the end is he always made it too hard to develop a business case to have biodiesel on a massive scale. Mm. And think about what's required to do that. You have to have, you know, thousands of square miles of, you know, growing, you know, whatever vegetable you choose, and then a whole refining capacity and distribution capacity to do it. There's an example of how Rockefeller approached the Chinese market, you know, 100 years ago plus that back when really what he was delivering was oil for illumination. And people forget that Standard Oil from the time of its founding in 1870 to the early 1900s was really in the illumination business. They were they were selling kerosene and gasoline was a waste product. Mm -hmm. So he entered the Chinese market for illumination. And what he did was deliver these really nice, slick looking lanterns that burn kerosene. In China, they had been using for illumination natural gas or other oils, the vegetable oils for illumination. And he just made it very easy to, you know, he gave away the the lamps mm-hmm. and right. sold very cheap kerosene. And then once they were addicted to using, you know, the lamps with kerosene, the, the price of kerosene, of course, went up and he had sort of mm-hmm. entered the market. It was the same kind of tactic with fuel for the combustion engine. It, you know, if you wanted to start developing a biodiesel infrastructure, which would be very costly, Mm-hmm. All he had to do was go in and sell cheap gasoline and and just undercut any business case to make that investment. Wow. And uh, amazing how that continues to this day, right? I mean, like you said, it's a, the Willie Nelson example. I think uh, I think Jimmy Buffett had a van that th- was the same, but it's um, yeah, it's just a legacy that live that certainly lives on. Uh, right. It's it's a it's a. You know, it's a commodity product, and so you can compete really only on price. Yeah, uh, there's not a there's not much of a quality differential, um, and and Rockefeller had such scale that he was able to compete very effectively on price. Right. 
So and we're talking about, you know, obviously diesel changed the world from, from commerce to warfare and it but it, you know, really changed our entire, our pastime as well. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What, what else, let me, how do I say this? What do you want people to know about Rudolph Diesel? Especially, maybe especially voters. Well, you know, it, from the, from the perspective of voters, it, it is a fundamentally different and better engine. I, you know, a lot of guys that I see down in the docks, they, they're still running the gasoline outboards and, mm-hmm. And uh, when you talk about boat fires and fumes and efficiency, they're unaware. Now, when you're when you get to the bigger boats, you know, like 100 percent of cargo ships around the world are still that's diesel. I think they've tried like one nuclear powered cargo that's ship, but it was kind of a failure. Right. Uh, I don't think there's a really effective option other than diesel for cargo. But even for the sort of smaller, you know, 30 to 50 foot boats. Um, Diesel is just a better engine. It runs forever. I've had zero, I mean, knock wood, I've had zero maintenance on mine. Um, and really from the outset, Rudolph's engine had remarkable efficiency and maintenance records. So, you know, changed the U.S. Navy. There's a quote in the book about um, an admiral after World War II saying that every vessel used on D-Day was diesel. And 100% of them delivered. They had zero failures on the, on the engine side for all those marine vessels on D-Day. Um, what an unbelievable but, legacy. Yeah. And then, you know, but on the flip side with diesel, the reason Kaiser Wilhelm in Germany, the, you know, the emperor of Germany, came up as a name of possible murder suspects is the diesel engine enabled submarine warfare. There was no submarine that was worth anything other than like laying mines and harbors mm-hmm. prior to diesel. And that's why, you know, he was, he was a little bit, uh, he was getting a little bit closer to, uh, England in terms of uh, the diplomacy of the time. Mm-hmm. And this was during the Anglo-German naval arms race leading into World War I when, when uh, England and Germany were really competing for primacy on the seas. Mm-hmm. And England had established dominance in being able to build the dreadnoughts, the great battleships of the day. Mm-hmm. But Germany thought, well, you know what? We're going to actually be dominant under the waves. We're going to build the best submarine fleet. And then Diesel was on, you know, when he disappeared, the reason for his trip across the North Sea on that day in September of 1913 was to travel over to Great Britain because he was co-founder and board director of a new diesel engine manufacturing company in Great Britain, whose mandate it was to build diesels for the Royal Navy submarine fleet. And, you know, at a time when 
when Germany and Great Britain are on the edge of war mm-hmm. uh, all over, mm-hmm. you know, Germany's ambition to have colonies overseas and to build a strong Navy that would threaten Britain's Navy. And so, you know, it was very upsetting to the Kaiser to imagine that Rudolph, who was still the main expert with diesel technology, was going to help the Royal Navy submarine uh, fleet when he was trying to establish his own U-boats as the dominant force in the oceans. And so that people very quickly pointed a finger at Wilhelm saying, you must have, you must have killed him. Well, I mean, talk, um, talk about motive. It's, you know, think about what people have been killed for in the world. And it's like, you know, people have been killed for so much less. It's whether it's winning a, a, a world war or, or dismantling an empire. I mean, that's, I think that's why it's so quick and so easy to believe that, uh, that, yeah, that somebody would want him to not, not exist anymore. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, one other thing I'll, I'll mention about that is there's this term that we hear more these days. It's called technical sweetness. Mm-hmm. And technical sweetness describes the feeling of euphoria, euphoria that an inventor gets when his invention advances. And when that feeling of euphoria can overwhelm any sense of caution about whether or not it's a good thing that that technology should advance. And so it was first used in, in the context of Oppenheimer and the bomb. And we hear it a lot today with AI, artificial intelligence. Like well, this, is, this mm-hmm. thing is sort of outrunning our, our sense of ethics about how it should be used. And you could apply it to diesel as well. You know, you, you brought up his sort of quaint sounding intended usage for the engine that he had in the 1880s. Yeah. And then here it is powering what was at that time a very controversial stealth, stealth weapon, the submarine. Right. It was, you know, most British admirals refused to... Uh, to endorse the submarine as a as a weapon, they thought it was ungentlemanly and un-English to you know sneak attack somebody from under the water, and then you have no ability to rescue their crew as the ship sinks. You know you can't take on crew or cargo. So so most British didn't even really want the submarine. They thought it was was uh, an unethical weapon. And here Diesel is, you know, it's very clear in the early 1900s that he's helping navies develop diesel engines for the submarine use. So he was somewhat of a pacifist, but you know, maybe the technical sweetness got him a little too, because he was very much working toward applying the engine to these, uh, you know, military uses. Shifting slightly, but when I think about the the timing of your book, I mean, to me, it seems like what a what an interesting coincidence that you, you've kind of saved his memory and legacy and brought it to the forefront at a time when, especially at least in the marine space we do have other fuel sources coming in and at least trying to nip at the heels of the diesel engine, thinking about, you know, we've done a lot of reporting on, you know, on electric engines, electric outboards. We're just back from Miami where Yamaha is talking about their hydrogen outboard. So it it just seems like such an interesting time where it's like, if you didn't kind of rescue his story, you could see it being completely forgotten to time. Do you feel that way maybe? Well, yeah, diesel has definitely had some brand damage of the last few decades. There was a Volkswagen scandal over emissions for mm. automobiles didn't not long that. ago. Didn't even think um, of But, you know, it's it's still to this day, there's this sort of bit I do when you get out on book tour. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I've done this like 50 times now, but if yeah. you think about a piece of tropical fruit grown, you know, on some equator, equatorial island, Every piece of heavy machinery and farm equipment used to grow that fruit was diesel powered. Mm. And the fruit then gets loaded onto a truck, 100% of trucks, anything larger than a passenger car, diesel. 
yep. goes down to the wharf for a crane, diesel powered, loads it onto a cargo ship, 100% of cargo ships, diesel, mm-hmm. goes across the oceans. It's offloaded in port somewhere across the world, gets loaded, you know, again, a crane, train. Uh, most trains, 100% of trains really since about the 1930s, 40s are diesel. And then into some warehouse where the local power plant is probably diesel. Like nothing moves in our global economy without diesel to this day. And so as much as things are nipping at the heels of diesel, it's going to be a long, long time before, you know, diesel is uh, has seen its last time here. That makes sense. You know, just um, this isn't really a question. This is more of just a, a random thought or, or an aside. But what you do so well in the book is you really explain how Rudolph was such a multifaceted person. He wasn't just, you know, some guy that had one great invention and one lucky break. He was born kind of an outlier with this uh, you know, kind of an engineer's mind and his his unlikely story, which is like everybody's story, that people held him along and chance encounters brought him to the, to the place he is. So it's not, he's not just a guy with one lucky break. He was just a fascinating person, even, even without the diesel engine, without his mysterious death was, uh, is just what you captured so well. So. No, thank you. Incredible perseverance on his part. Mm, exactly. I, I feel like I have a confession to make. Cause like as a writer, I, I almost feel like, I almost feel like I cheated here, but I wanted to ask you, I listened to the book on audible. So I always say that I read the book, but I, I listened to it and it was kind of a fascinating experience. I mean, I have to ask, like, you have a podcast, the, you know, the book seems to be doing really well on Audible. <laughs> what do you think about the new role of audio in storytelling? I, I think it's fantastic. Okay. I, I, listen, I actually don't do Audible books, but I do a lot of podcasts. And uh, for some reason, I still like to hold the book. And one thing I just discovered, yeah. and maybe your listeners will want to know this before they make a decision on format. I just mm-hmm. learned that in the end, maybe you can confirm if I'm wrong, but I learned that in Audible, in the audio book, it doesn't include the footnotes. And there are a number of fascinating, incredible footnotes. So nope. Scott Brick does the audio book and Scott Brick's amazing at, at uh, he's, like, yeah, he's just the master of, uh, they call him the golden voice. So he's just the master of doing audiobooks. But I did hear that. So in the book, I probably have, in my first draft, I might've had 300 footnotes, you know, little tidbits of information. They're a little bit out of the narrative, but give some fascinating context. And so my editor was like, that's too many, you know, because you're sort of reading, then you got to bottom the page and read this little nugget and then come back up. So, yeah. So, you know, I did pare it down to under 100. I'm not even sure how many are there, but they're all really fascinating things. And for some people, it's been their favorite part of the book. So you go get this incredible piece of like little treasure at the bottom of the page. Yeah. Um, But I think because it's so out of the narrative that it's it's not in the audio book. Right. It makes sense. Um, it would be it could be could be jarring when he's just when he's rolling through it. I could yeah. see. Yeah. But anyway, I, I listen to a ton of podcasts. I think audio is a great format. You're you know, you can do it in the car, you're where you're cooking while you're hands free, you know. Right. Um, but with books, I still grab the book and I I tend to wanna, you know, I, I also will there are certain books that I'll read at night of 10 pages when you're going to sleep at night and you're so tired. But other books that I'm really into, I try to block out. And because I'm a writer, I have the luxury of doing this. So I, right, right. Not anyone can block out two, three hours, but I try to read in two, three hour blocks. Okay. Well, that that certainly makes sense. You know, I, I wanted to, uh, we're kind of going on these these side tangents here, but your boat, is that is that a shelter? I saw one picture, I think it was kind of hard to tell. It was your website or it might've looked on your social media. Is that is that a shelter island boat? 
It is a Shelter Island uh, 38 runabout. And I will tell you one thing okay. that's not on the website. It's hall number one. Oh, and so amazing. it's the one that, you know, Billy Joel helped design yep. these boats yep. uh, with CH uh, Marine. Mm-hmm. And uh, so Billy Joel owned hall number one for a number of years. So we have Billy Joel's former boat. Oh, my God. That's awesome. Big, big Billy Joel fan and also a fan of the guys at uh, at, at CH Marine. I love I'm just in Connecticut visiting Shelter Island and and seeing those guys build those boats. It's uh, it's a that boat. Those boats have a lot of character, so I can see I can see why someone like you would be attracted to it. It's great. It performs well. Uh, Peter Needham is still mm-hmm. there. I think it's been a few years yeah. since I spoke to him, but uh, it's a it's a really fun, beautiful boat. Now they're not the ones that did, they didn't repower it. You had that done somewhere else. No, I sent it back to Peter. Yeah. Oh, incredible. So. Was it? Did it go from stern drives to straight to straight diesels? It, it was just gasoline. Okay. Uh, there is always an IO, but uh, we went from gasoline to diesel. So I, right now they're Yanmar three seventies on there, two twin three seventy oh, nice. Yanmars. Oh, that, that's that's amazing. So uh, what what kind? If you don't mind me asking, and uh, what kind of boating do you like to do? Well, I mean, I you know, in, in when I was young, we we water ski or wakeboard or go crabbing and fishing around the bays i mean now we just do some trips you know boat down atlantic city and and uh I, we don't sleep on the boat normally just sort of dock up and get a hotel and, you know watch a show and do some gambling and stay the night there yeah yeah um i boat uh around the long island sound a little bit connecticut area okay um yeah do you have a favorite you know. spot do you have a favorite spot on the sound uh no, just, just sort of tooling around. I mean, sometimes we'll just grab some food and, you know, the, the Shelter Island is a bit like a Hinkley picnic boat. So we'll grab some food and some drinks and just tool around and and come on back. We actually took the boat to the U.S. Open to see the tennis finals. Oh, you know what? I, I feel <laughs> like summer. I did see that. We uh, we had a writer do a story where he took a boat to the uh, <clears throat> the U.S. Open. I guess the, the marina that you got tied up to is is a little questionable. What a great what a great experience. And what a way to uh, what a way to experience the Open. It, I mean, the, the marina is pretty run down, but it's a place to tie up and then you can just right. walk into the walk into the arena. Yeah, um, that's that's hard to beat. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of flotsam going around there. So it's, there, mm. there are a few like telephone pole sized day enders yeah. on the water if you uh, if you hit that. But so I wouldn't want to do that at night, really. But we did a day trip. That, that, that makes sense. Well, I can't. Well, let me see. I kind of got like two part questions. So, so now when you go out on your boat, I mean, I, I can't help but think that you must be thinking a little bit of Rudolph like anytime you're going out and uh, just kind of how how his life and now your life get to intertwine a little bit. Very, very much. I mean, and I, I talked about the story and the mystery with my family so much that he became sort of a character around our household that we all miss him a little bit. And I'm not wow. working on the on the book as much. But I do right. think about it on the boat, you know, but for that boat and that conversation, mm-hmm. that repower, I've come across this idea of the book. I've never come across the mystery of it. Uh, so, I, I mean, it's also occurred to me that he, he like diesel kind of paid for the boat for me in a way. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah that's yeah, that's uh, so well said. You know, I got I got to ask what uh, what comes next for the mysterious case of Rudolph Diesel? I mean, I can't help but think. There's so much bad stuff on Netflix. I, you, please tell me this is going to be like a, a limited limited edition series or or a documentary or something. I I would love any of the above. I'd love to see some book to film treatment of it. 
there someone in LA, there's a producer in LA who has acquired the option. Okay. Currently shopping it around to, you know, writers and directors. I don't even really know how all that works, but that's somewhat underway, but I, I don't have any real big news there. I mean, many books get optioned and nothing happens. So, you know, getting this and far not, is uh, how many books have all the ingredients that this does, especially you kind of mentioned like that. I feel like that era is having a, a bit of a moment The the late 1800s is kind of like having its having its time. So, yeah, it is. And, and you know, there's there a lot of this. There are a lot of parallels with Oppenheimer and Diesel as well. Exactly. And the success of Oppenheimer in the, in the box office is, has got to be helpful, I would think. But yeah, Tesla, I mean, it has yeah. everything. Or Yeah, Tesla too. Tesla's getting and, his time. And this in this book, it does have many ingredients because it, it kind of turns into this Agatha Christie, Agatha Christie mystery at the end mm, Yeah, uh, as well. So there's, there's a lot, lot to it. Now, yeah, I just got to touch on the end, the ending one more time. And I'm being very trying really hard not to not to spoil anything. But I found myself again, I was I listened to the story. And and by the end, it is it is so gripping. I'm, I was finding excuses to, you know, I got to take the dog for another walk and just just try to get through <laughs> the end. We got, I got a, you know, three and a half year old at home and you know, just finding reasons to get out and keep listening to it. It it hooks you in a serious way. It was, it was so good. Oh, thanks. Yeah, the, the pace at the end does it, it it's a sprint it, it kind of goes pedal to metal there yeah. yeah absolutely but the uh you know this this was a this was a great background and and one thing i like to ask um anyone who comes on is you know is you're gonna get a two-part question but i like to ask how how has boating changed your life but for you i'd also like to ask how has the book changed your boating mm. how's boating change boating you know it it's a totally different way to enter the world and um if you have a boat you know we've always gone to the jersey shore as a kid and mm-hmm. if you don't have a boat you're, you know you are you're bound to the land really and just having a boat it, it allows you to access so many other things and mm-hmm. it's a great thing to do with people but i also i, I love going out there alone early in the morning cup of coffee mm-hmm. you know there's still off like a mist on the water it's the time when the bay can be totally glassy and just a quiet time of the boat with or without music, sometimes just utter silence. Yeah. And then it's just a time to, it, it's different from like cleaning an office or cleaning your room, just going down and working on the boat. Like if, if you love that part of it, cleaning the boat, just spending yeah. some time when they're doing, you know, invent, as you say, you're inventing reasons to go walk the dog. If you're inventing reasons <laughs> to go down and be on the boat to, oh, for sure. you know, wash it down, or for, it, then you got to have a boat. It's just a, it's just, it's more than a hobby. And uh, that's, I, I feel like I'm quoting, fast times at Richmond high there, but it's uh it's just a great way to enter the world. And how's the book changed my, my boating? You know, the book came out in September mm-hmm. and I think the only, I've only been out of the boat probably three times since the book oh, came out. Wow. I had to put it away and right, right. in November I got busy with book tour, but we did, you know, the, the U S open trip was probably actually right before the book came out. So okay. anyway, it's changed by boating and then I'm constantly thinking about the engine and, it yeah. takes me back to diesel and you know him refitting the engine for submarines or the first mm. uh Ch- churchill plays a role in the book winston churchill and right. the fur this danish company burmeister and wayne I, you might know are they still around they, i think I they think might think be so. yeah maybe some sure. some they've been acquired five times or something but they were a huge yeah. company in 1912 yeah and they built the first ocean going diesel powered cargo ship merchant marine ship and it launched okay. in 1912 and diesel uh you know was very helpful in designing the engines for that ship and then the ship went from 
from uh, Denmark over to Great Britain up in the West India docks where Winston Churchill toured the ship. And you, you would know this from the book. And, uh, you know, so I, I think about, you know, these early engines that changed everything. It's the, the Salandia, this ship is, is sometimes referred to as the ship that changed the world because it completely changed merchant marine. And, it, you know, it's the first cargo ship. Mm-hmm. Uh, under diesel power and it's it just like it completely outdated anything steam powered um so i i can't get on a boat now without thinking about all this naval history well and i I'm, i feel pretty confident that any power mode readers or listeners that pick up the book they're going to feel the exact same way i know it's uh i'll never get on a boat and and hear the diesels fire up and, and not you know in some way so even subconsciously think think about this story or or just uh, you know, start quit, start quizzing people and fellow boaters. Be like, you know, you know who invented these engines? I mean, that's going to be. I'm probably going to get annoying with it because uh, I enjoyed the, <laughs> I enjoyed the book so much. But uh, yeah, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. I hope everyone goes out and and picks up the mysterious case of Rudolph Diesel or or listens to it. That that's a great version too. And uh, yeah, I I really appreciate you coming on, Doug. It's uh, it, it was a great book. Thank you for sharing it with us. Uh, well, thank you. Thank you for spreading the word. And I, you know, it, it is, uh, it's a fun story, particularly for the, the yachting community, I think. Mm. Yeah, I, I, I think they'll love it. So hopefully, uh, Doug, thank you again for coming on. Hopefully, uh, if you're out cruising Long Island Sound this summer, we'll, uh, hopefully I'll, I'll run into you out on the water. That'd be great. Thanks, Dan. Appreciate it. I some of my theories. <laughs> that sounds great. Thanks again, Doug. Thank you.